If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's essentially the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need on one place. Let me explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your pod right from your phone or your computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your pod on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for Let's Process This with Melinda Hill. That's me. I hope you enjoy my chat with my longtime friend, Liz Feldman, as much as I enjoy chatting with her. I have known Liz for years from the comedy scene and I've just always admired her super inspiring creative process and her work ethic and just in general, her positivity. So Liz is the creator and showrunner of the brilliant dark comedy series, Dead to Me. It is one of my personal favorite series starring Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini. And it's returning to Netflix for season two this week on May 8th. I hope you will watch it. Uh, I certainly will be watching it and loving it. And I just really love chatting with her and hearing about her career trajectory from being a young comedian to writing for Ellen DeGeneres to creating and manifesting her own TV shows. And also just loved hearing about how she processed trauma and grief by using the power of reframing and gratitude and rewriting her own personal story to one that served her and helped her move forward. So I've really been thinking about the stories that we tell ourselves and how that applies to right now to the pandemic specifically, because I'm just seeing a lot of, as I'm sure you are too, a lot of panic and fear in the environment. And I can catch myself going into that as well. But for me, that can be debilitating. Um, So what helps me personally is just to not focus on the things I can't control and just look to what I can control. And one thing I can control is the story I'm telling myself and others, right? Like I'm not responsible for that first thought that comes in, but I am responsible for the second one. In other words, I have a choice as to whether or not I go down the rabbit hole or pivot into something that is, you know, more positive for myself. Uh, I can take responsibility for my thoughts and what I'm putting out to the world and choose to be the light that I'd like to see right now. And I can choose to not contribute to the panic. And that's what I'm doing. And actually, that's why I'm doing this podcast. I want to provide some light, some humor, some relief, some inspiration. And the idea that that any obstacles or challenges that we are confronted with can be transformed into something positive and also truly great art, truly great entertainment for all of my creatives out there. I want to look back at this time and remember that I created something of value and added value to the world. I'm committed to creating connection with new and old friends, for instance, peace, creative projects. I haven't uh, necessarily had the time to, to focus on long socially distanced walks. I'm creating recipes. I'm creating naps creating a lot of naps. I'm creating snuggles with my cat, Stardust, named after Ziggy Stardust, of course. I'm creating cuddle comas, a lot of cuddle comas. I'm actively practicing enjoying what is here to enjoy right now. For instance, the lack of urgency. I'm appreciating the lack of urgency, the lack of compare and despair that I typically can fall into on social media, that everyone's doing something and I should be doing something more. I'm enjoying not having that right now. I'm enjoying um, the lack of needing to be anywhere other than where I am right now, doing exactly what I'm doing right now. 
In terms of stories we tell ourselves, we have so much power to tell a story that is the most self-honoring. I find that if I can refrain from telling a negative story, just put the pause button on it uh, and tell a new one. It's just super powerful. My mood shifts. I feel better. My day opens up. I'm suddenly standing in infinite possibilities that I can't access if I'm stuck in an old story. I think that's why the present moment is actually the fifth dimension, because it is the field of infinite possibilities. But the field of infinite possibilities cannot be accessed if we're stuck in an old story. All right, guys, you are listening to Let's Process This the show that explores overcoming obstacles and how that informs the creative process. During the pandemic, Let's Process This is air quotes filmed in front of a live audience on Instagram Live at Real Melinda Hill on Monday nights betwixt 5 to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And you can email your questions for our upcoming guests into lptpod at gmail.com that's lptpod at gmail.com prior to showtime or during the interview via ig live and we will answer as many questions as we can get to at the end of our chat thank you so much for your support of the let's process this show we super appreciate you tuning in and sharing it with your friends anyone who could benefit And you can also subscribe to the podcast and or become a patron anywhere you get podcasts. All right, guys, let's hear from our fabulous guest, Liz Feldman. Hi, Liz. Thank you for being here. I wanted to ask you about your show, the YouTube show. It's so good. What's happening with that? Oh, I, I mean, you know, oh, my God. I wish you could see what just flew by my window. Um, what is like it? A, it was like a scarab bug. You know, those, like, incredibly large. They look like they look like beetle, beetles with wings. Anyway, just want you to know that I'm. Uh, oh, my gosh. Are you okay? Um, I'm great. I'm great. I just was distracted. You know, when something comes, like, right here. Anyway, um. Uh, this is live. You know, this is what happens. Um, my, my, I, I've been hosting the show called This Just Out. I started doing it in 2008. Um, I haven't done it in a while. It's like, it's just, I, I love to do it. It's, it's literally like, a, it's like a, I, I do this show for like $40. Like, like I slap it together. My friends come over and I interview them and, you know, act inappropriate. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's really just about putting the message out there that, you know, it's, it's, not only is it okay to be gay, but it's great. Yeah. You know? And that's sort of what it's all about. But I, I haven't really had any time, believe it or not, even in even in this sequestered quarantine land to do it. Because um, I've just sort of, I've just finished making the second season of Dead to Me and it comes out this Friday. So Yeah, I'm so excited that Dead to Me, first of all, I loved your YouTube show. And yes. I wonder if you'll ever do like a talk show in the future. Um, because you're, I would love it. you're yeah. really great at hosting. Thank you. Yeah, I, it is definitely something I love to do. Um, it's something I've always intended to go back to. Um, and we'll see, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I'm inspired a lot by people like Larry David and, you know, um, you know, people that were behind the scenes, but, you know, are obviously personalities in and of themselves, ourselves. And uh, it's certainly something I'd be interested to do. Cool, cool. Yeah, I thought it was you're so charming and funny, and I love the little funny things you put on, and I love the positive message of it. Yeah, why not? Thank Um, you. Let's talk about Dead to Me. It's coming out season two this Friday, May 8th, Mm -hmm. Netflix. I love this show so much. I'm obsessed. Thank Thank you. I mean, how did you come up with this? Okay, first of all, let's back up. Let's back up. Okay. What, how did you get into the business of show? How did Liz Feldman's career begin? Well, we are backing way the fuck up. Um, I mean, uh, okay, so, I mean, the, the sh- I'll try to tell this as succinctly as possible, but basically I've always wanted to be an, an entertainer. Um, I literally asked for an agent for my 10th birthday, uh, and my parents were like, I don't, that's not actually 
we can't, it's not, it doesn't work like that. Um, but I kind of made a deal with my folks back then. I'm from Brooklyn. Um, and they were like, look, when you're old enough to ride the subway by yourself and take yourself to auditions, you know, you can, you can start to pursue that, but like not until then. And so like, like literally when I was 13 and I was allowed to start, you know, taking myself uh, to the city on the subway, what happened to you? Where'd you go? I don't know. I lost you. Oh, wait, I see it. Ah! IG Live, you never know what's going to happen. Okay, go I, ahead. You really never know. So so I started I started to uh, answer ads in Backstage Magazine. Um, and I would, like, you know, go to these little auditions. And, um, and then uh, I ended up doing this show uh, with a director named Hilary Scarl that was all kids, and we wrote the show ourselves. And so I had like, I wrote a monologue, which I'd never done anything like that. I was, I think maybe 14 at the time. And she was a, a real mentor to me. And she actually saw an ad in Backstage Magazine for kids who do stand-up. And I was like, I don't do stand-up. I don't know how to write a joke. And she's like, I, you, I think you do, actually. Like, you're funny. You could do that. And I kind of like ignored her because I was too scared to do it. And then the following year, I saw uh, the same ad. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. I uh, wrote three minutes of material. And I went to um, this audition, which was like this this guy named Sid Gold. Literally, Sid Gold, Gold Star Talent Management. Um, <laughs> do you know Elon Gold? You know the comedian Elon Gold? Yes. Yes, it's his dad. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so he, he like represented kids who did stand up and so I auditioned for him with these like three minutes I wrote about my mom being annoying and uh <laughs> and then he he like started managing me and he started putting me in these shows of kids who do stand up and then um like within within like a year or so he I was writing jokes for the other kids like he was asking me to help punch up their material oh and it was not at all something I thought about doing you know um and so I was really kind of guided in that direction and then from doing stand-up I guess you would say I was discovered by Nickelodeon and um I um yeah they they saw me do stand-up and they uh I got a job as a writer and a performer on all that when uh, I was uh, about three weeks after I graduated from high school Oh my gosh. Wow. So nobody else in your family was a performer, was a writer. This was just an, a calling you well, had. I come from a New York Jewish family. Everybody thinks they're hilarious. Um, I think I have some family members on this Zoom. So, um, you know, they can, this is not a Zoom, sorry, whatever this is called, IG Live. Um, I, so like, I come from a very fun family. Everybody like is enamored of show business, but nobody ever pursued it. My sister was a very talented actress, um, and she is now a, a writer and a director. So, you know, she definitely had some inf I, I kind of, like, I think I got the bug from her. Um, but I kind of, like, you know, pursued it uh, first, I guess. Uh, that's so great to get such a, a young and early start. That's, that's so smart. And what happened after all that? So after all that, I was like, oh, my God, uh, I want to be a normal kid, and I don't want to work until 2 o'clock in the morning, and I don't want to work for an asshole. Um, and uh, I, I, I like, was like, I'm 18 years old. I want to go to college. Like, I want to like do this thing that other teenagers do because it's really hard to enter the real world, and I wanted to, like, I wanted to have fun. So I um, went to Boston University. Um, I kind of followed my best friend from high school there. Um, his name's Dan Fogler. He's an actor. Um, and I like fell into this incredible crowd of people in college who were all actors. Um, I myself was like in the improv group in college, you know, like that's, it's a crazy story about how I even went there, but basically I wasn't, I wasn't going to school at Boston university. I was hanging out with Dan. He was like, hey, I'm going to the improv uh, group auditions. You should come. And I was like, but I don't go to school here. I went anyway. Um, and I got in. And then they were like, you know, they found out I didn't go to school there. And they were like, well, if you went to school here, you could be in the improv group. And the next day I walked into the admissions office. And I like, like I sat and like filled out an application. 
and I got in. And so and that's why I went to Boston University. Um, wow. I had a great experience there. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, really fell in love with improv and uh, studied television and then moved out to L.A. and started the Brownlings. Um, yeah. Okay, so I think that brings us to where we met because I remember knowing, I just feel, feel like I was trying to remember when we actually met, but I feel like I've always known of you and I knew, I always saw yeah. you performing at the Groundlings. Yeah, I know. I can't, I can't quite remember the like, moment we met, but I feel like I've just known you for 20 years. Yeah. I feel like we've just always known each other. Which yeah. do you prefer, uh, improv or stand-up? Well, considering that I still do improv and I don't do stand-up anymore, I guess the answer is ultimately improv. But um, I, I'm, you know, there are there are really great things about both of them. Improv is for me like one of my great joys because obviously there's no preparation. You can't be ready to, do, you know, it's like you you just get to go out there and just talk off the top of your head and play with other really funny people. And, you know, I definitely think that um, doing improv has, is probably like one of my great sources of joy. So I guess I gotta go with improv. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's so great for a writer and a performer. That training was was really great too. Like, what do you, did you like studying at both of those places or there's pros and cons of both? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, so for people who don't know, like the Groundlings is a is a sketch and improv theater where you go through like this whole years and years of training and you kind of go up this ever shrinking pyramid, um, you know, and finally, if you're lucky, you get to perform in one of their companies. And um, I was lucky enough to get to be in the Sunday company, as were you, yeah? No, I was actually cut right before Sunday. I was cut right after advance. Well, they, they do have a reputation of not seeing talent when it's right before their eyes, so not surprising. <laughs> um, but uh, it takes so long to get through the Groundlings yeah. program, especially then. The school was much smaller than it is now. Um, that in the time I was like waiting between one uh, level and the next, I did the entire Second City program. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's exactly so, why I started stand-up, because there was such a long gap between Writer's Lab and Advanced. Yes. And I was like, I can't just sit here waiting to like get into Advanced. So um, my, a bunch of friends and I decided to do uh, Second City together, and it was an incredible experience and a very different approach to, to writing and a different approach to character and to, 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 uh, to sketch. So... I'm really glad to have both because they were they were you know different mentalities. Um, but I definitely think that improv is a great uh, is a great training ground to be in a writer's room because that's basically what you're doing in a writer's room is yes anding. You know you you're listening to other people, you're taking their idea and just trying to build upon it. So like at its best, you know they're very similar. And you have to be unafraid, not afraid to pitch pitch jokes all day, right? Yes, and you can't be afraid to, to say something that doesn't land. Because that will happen. It's just going to happen. Um, so did you ever try UCB or you just did uh, those other two? No, you know, by the time UCB um, came, like I started in the Groundlings 22 years ago. So, you know, by the time UCB came around, I had already gone through both programs uh, in, in its entirety, and I had a career somewhat, so it didn't seem like to start back at another, you know, school felt like the right move at the time. Yeah, so, like, I'm sure people ask you all the time, where should I study improv? Like, what do you tell them? I get asked that all the time. I mean, listen, I, I, think, that, I think that both the Groundlings and Second City are great places to do it, and I think it depends on what your end game is. Are you, are you learning just to learn, or do you have sort of aspiration? You know, do you want to, um, you know, do you want this to be one of the building blocks of your career, as opposed to like, do you just want to have fun? You know, um, when when I was in the Groundlings, it was very cutthroat. You know, it was very competitive, and yeah. so if you were you got to a certain level, that's because you were trying to have a career you know, as a comedic actor, writer person. Um, and so, you know, for people who want that career, you know, I think the Groundlings is a good place to train, you know. Um, 
And I think, you know, they're, I mean, listen, there, I've, I've, I've went through both programs with people who are now incredibly successful. So I think you can't go wrong either way. Yeah, I would agree. I think any improv experience, plus just all the other people you're going to meet there, like a lot of those people exactly. I've known for years, they're all, they're incredible. So yes. Liz, like, how did you transition from performer to writer or was it always just both? It, it, well, I mean, I, I, it's interesting. I was just talking about this uh, earlier today that like, you know, I think I, I've, I've always been enamored of performing. I'm an extroverted person. I'm the baby of my family. You know, I was sort of born into my family, I think, to entertain them a little bit. Um, and so I've never, I've always enjoyed an audience. Um, and um, I think for me, writing kind of found me. I, I wasn't, I wasn't aware that that was even really like a viable career, I guess, or maybe I was aware of it, but I didn't think it was for me. But like, you know, when I was doing stand up, for example, and you know, my manager started having me write jokes for other kids. Like I wasn't, I didn't think to do that. He asked me, you know, like it just sort of started to happen. And then with Nickelodeon, with all that, um, I, you know, I, at first I was just auditioning to be on the show and then they were like, well, who writes your standup? And my manager said, you know, she does. And then, and then they were like, well, maybe you should be a writer on the show. And again, it wasn't something I was looking for. It, it sort of found me. And, um, I think the universe sometimes has a way of doing that, you know, where you may not seek a path, but it keeps showing it to you. Yeah. And with writing, that's what happened. It just kept, it just kept happening that people were like, well, have you thought about writing or, you know, like that sketch you wrote, that was, you, that was really well written. And I'm like, was it? Okay. Um, and so I, I was, uh, though I had had sort of a negative experience as a writer on all that. Um, and because of that, I kind of, I didn't pursue writing for many years. Um, but once I had a couple of years trying to make it as like an actor, as a comedic, as a, as like a character actress in LA, um, I was so, you know, even when I had a good year, I had financially nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. I was still working in a restaurant, which is fantastic. And let me tell you, boy, do I appreciate people who work in restaurants mm -hmm. uh, always, but now more than ever. Which one did you work at? I worked at a restaurant called Grace Restaurant. It was on Beverly. Do you remember Grace Restaurant? It's no. It's where Petty Cash is now. I don't know where that is. Uh, do you know the restaurant Redbird yeah. downtown? Okay, the same people had owned uh and uh, uh neil fraser was the chef of grace restaurant okay cool. and i was a hostess and like it, they were so sweet to me because they were like someday you're gonna leave us and you're gonna like you know you're gonna make it and i was like okay right now i'm you know working for like 60 dollars a shift and you know yeah helping rich people helping rich people to their to their tables but um so i i, I had sort of like had to have a come to jesus with myself you know in, in my mid-20s and i was like you know, I think I have this other skill that maybe I could try to monetize, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, around 26 years old, I decided to try my hand at writing again. And that's sort of when things started to, to take off again. Okay, so cool. So let's talk about that. Like how, like what, did you write like a pilot or what, how did it, how, how did it happen? How did it, I mean, it's. <laughs> Like all careers, you know, never happens in the way you think it will. It takes three times as long as you would want it to. Um, and there are many twists and turns along the way. So for me, uh, I was in the Groundlings. Um, I uh, had spent a year and a half in the Sunday company, and then I was cut. Uh, they weren't, you know, they were not interested in me for the main company, which at the time was truly the most heartbreaking thing that had ever happened to me. Um, yeah, that was devastating was, for me, too, I, when I got I was, cut. You get it. Sorry, I go was ahead. Really devastated. I, I thought, yeah. like, I thought that was going to be my whole life, you know. And yeah. uh, I was really, really uh, heartbroken. And I was actually, honestly, like, uh, uh, I was caught off guard. I thought, I, I think I thought I was going to make it in there, and I didn't. And of course, now I look back and I'm like, that's the best thing that could have happened because I happen to be one of those people who are like, "Fuck you, I'll show you." <laughs> Um, you know, that's the Brooklyn in me. So I, um, I, I very quickly, I mean, I was like extremely, uh, sad and in, in a real, uh, a real amount of grief, but yeah. as soon as I could sort of pick myself up again, I 
um, got together with a friend of mine that I had met at Second City, Pamela Ribbon, and uh, she and I did a two-person show. We wrote this show, and we got into Aspen Comedy Festival, and we, like, you know, we, we ran the show in L.A., we did it in Aspen, and, like, there was, like, another sort of nod there where people were like, That's a, that show's really well-written, you know, and we're like, oh, okay, well, she's now a writer as well. Yeah, so, um, I love Pam. Yeah, she's the best, and, you know, guys, she wrote Moana. If you, if you, if you don't know who I'm talking about, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive. So, um, so, so after that, um, you know, I, I had at that point amassed quite, quite a, 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 a what's it called a portfolio of sketches. Uh, cause that was a sketch show too. And, um, you know, once I had those sketches all together, I was like, Oh, I kind of have like, this is like something you would submit to get a job. And, um, I sat down with my manager, um, who is still my manager, Christy Smith, um, cool. and I said, you know, I'm interested, I, I want to pursue life as a writer, I, I, if you can find me a job, and miraculously, I, I would say, I think it was like within a month, I had gotten that job writing for Blue Collar TV. Okay, so you were on Blue Collar with like Blaine and Laura House, yes. and... Yes, okay. I actually brought Laura House in. Okay, wow, so yes. like, how was that job? Was that like your first real... I mean, yes, after, after all that, that was like my first real staffing job. And um, again, I was the only woman for the first season um, that I worked on it. And it, it just was a better experience though. I, I kind of, I just knew more what I was doing. I had actually written before, like, you know, at 18 when I was, you know, called down to Orlando, Florida to write sketch comedy. Like I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. Um, this I had a better idea, you know, um, and um, and it, it, you know, and weirdly, like, for some reason, I was like able to write that show. I'm a gay Jew from Brooklyn, and here I am, like, writing, you know, bits for Larry the Cable Guy and Jeff Foxworthy. It doesn't really make sense, but yeah, um, so like, yeah, we, sorry, go ahead. No, it just was, we, I, I still look back and I'm like, how the hell did that work? But it did. Um, yeah, and, and then in the next season, they brought on more women, Laura House being one of them, because I'm like, I have a friend from Texas. She'd be fucking brilliant at this. And she was. Um, That's so great. Yeah. How, did, how was like, that, being like the only woman on staff? Well, it's, you know, for women of my uh, generation, it's a common experience. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, it was interesting. I was... Um, you know, it's, it's definitely, it was a boys club, you know, there were, you know, you, you do sort of just develop like a bit of a skin for that. Um, but, you know, I have to say they were supportive, you know, of me as a writer. And, you know, I, I ended up, you know, being probably, you know, one of their go-to people on that show. Um, and so I, I look back at that time positively in terms of the writing of it. Um, you know, there was some homophobia that I don't need to get into that you can fill in the blanks about. Okay. Um, so there was that, but um, but for the most part, it was like it gave me the confidence to pursue, you know, a career as a writer because I was like, I think I could do this if I could write for this show, you know, which is so far outside of my point of view and 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 so like outside of my experience. Maybe if I aligned myself with someone that I really understood, I, I could write even better. Um, and for me, that person was Ellen. Um, okay. And so, yeah. So, so how, so, so wait, so how do you, how did you get through that job, like writing for blue collar voices when you are from Brooklyn? Um, you know, like, how did you do that? I mean, I guess because, honestly, because of my training at the Groundlings, like, you know, you end up playing so many characters and, you know, you, you, you run out of your own, you know, references as a, as a, as a sketch and comedy. I mean, like, you know, I did, I did 76 shows in a, in a row, you know, it's 76 weeks of trying to figure out, well, what the hell else can I do now? And so, you know, I, I have characters who were Southern. I had characters, you know, yeah. who came from a different socioeconomic background than I, you know, yeah. you do start to just expand your, you know, I don't know, like your palette of like what you can play. And I, I, whenever I come up with a character, like I really try to put myself 
in their shoes, you know, like, so you're not just doing a caricature, you're doing a character. And um, I think somehow it prepared me to be able to do blue collar TV. Okay. Um, so how'd you get yeah. to Ellen? Tell me about Ellen. <laughs> so with Ellen, um, I, I'm such a nerd that when her talk show started, um, uh, when her talk show started, I was so excited because I was such a huge fan of hers. Like I know every joke she's ever told, you know, I've seen her live, you know, I mean like huge, huge fan. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, when her talk show started, I was unemployed and I would, I would sit at home, I would watch her opening monologue and then I would turn the TV off and I would practice writing monologues for her. Wow. I had at the time no agent, nothing, like no reason to think that it could ever, you know what I mean? I like, love that. I, I just was like, I wanted to see if I could do it. You know, I wanted to see if I could write in her voice. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, at the end of that, you know, exercise, I had like three or four monologues. And so when, you know, when I was like, you know, two seasons into Blue Collar, um, my agent happened to represent uh, her head writer. And he was like, hey, I'm hearing rumblings that they might be looking for people. Get a submission together. And I was like, I have one. Oh, my gosh. And so I got this submission together and I kind of looked at what I had written. And I was like, all right, I can probably punch it up now. Do better. You know, write it, you know, write something fresh. Um, but that's essentially what I submitted. Uh, those things, you know, those monologues I had written a couple of years earlier. And, um, you know, somehow, you know, I got called in for an interview and uh, what was amazing was that I was told, Ellen's not going to be there. Don't worry. Don't be nervous. Like, you're just going to, you know, you're going to meet with, you know, her head writer and an EP. And um, and so I, like, I remember walking into the office, and I thought I heard Ellen's voice. But I'm like, well, they said she isn't going to be here. So probably maybe it's, she's, like, you know, playing on some monitor somewhere. And I walk into the office where they're going to interview me. And I see, like, underneath this, and I'm not kidding, life-size teddy bear, I see, like, little converse sticking out. And Ellen is literally hiding underneath <laughs> a life-size teddy bear and then pops out and surprises me as I walk in. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I mean, I was delighted, but, like, you know, of course, because she loves to surprise people, even then. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, here's a really weird, uh, uh, turn in the story is that about five or six years earlier, I had paid to like attend like a talk she was giving. And this was, um, right after her sitcom had been canceled. So she was like actually not in a, in a great, you know, time in her life. She was pretty like down in the dumps, you know, really sad about her show being canceled. Yeah. And I attended this like little talk she gave. I think I paid fifty dollars to go. I remember I was wearing red pants. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I was like twenty, I think, at the time. And um, I went up to her afterwards because you were allowed to like shake her hand uh, back when you could do that kind of thing. And uh, and I said to her, uh, "You're Carol Burnett, and I'm Vicki Lawrence, but you don't know that yet." Wow. I mean, the fucking ball's on me. I wouldn't yeah. do that now if you paid me a million dollars. But I had much uh, larger testicles back then. And um, she was like, what? And I was like, and she was like, wait, you think I'm going to get, like, another show and, like, put you on it? And I was like, yep, yeah, sounds good. See you then. <laughs> what, what do you think? Like, where did that come from? Was it a, a premonition? Where did that confidence come Was it a knowing? I don't know. I mean, I really did. I really did idolize her and I really did want to work with her. And I, I guess there was some part of me that felt that some sort of simpatico thing, like it could maybe happen, but I don't know. It's just like that confidence of youth, you know, yeah. like I just, it's, it's, it's almost like if there's like an ignorance to how confident, you know, I must've been at that time. I mean, what it, what it, what it does, but um, what's crazy is so now cut back to, Six years later, I'm walking into this interview. There she is. And I'm saying to myself, do not tell her that story. Do not bring that up. Like, what a story. Like, I'm like, do not tell her that story. She's going to, like, remember it and think you're an asshole or not remember it. And then you're going to feel bad. So don't tell it. And she shakes, you know, she's 
uh, puts her hand out to shake my hand and she's like, nice to meet you. And I'm like, we've already met. Cause I just like, couldn't, I just, I just blurted it out like an idiot. And she was like, we did. And I was like, um, and then I tell her the story that I just told you, Carol Burnett, Vicki Lawrence. And she was like, I remember that. <gasps> and I was like, so I thought maybe that would be the end of me, but um, we just got along really well. And she seemed to like the monologues I wrote for her. And we just, from the, from the get go, we just really get along. And, you know, we had like a really fun time just sitting there being, uh, I did anyway. And she hired me. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. So like how many writers did she hire that day? Just one? I don't know that day. Um, I think I was one of, I don't know, a couple of new writers. I, I, I feel like I might've shared an office. I can't remember. I think there at least one other new person. Yeah. That is amazing. It's crazy. So how, yeah. how was like, how long did you write for Ellen and, and like, what did you learn there? What were the highlights? Did you love it? Um, I did love it. I, I, I wrote for her for two seasons. Um, it is extremely challenging and exciting to do a show every day. Um, you know, if, if you're, you know, the person writing the monologue that day, you know, it's a lot of pressure and a lot of times like you start with nothing, you have a meeting with her in the morning, she says, you know, maybe I want to talk about squirrels today or something like that. Then you literally sprint back to your office. I mean, look, this is what it was like, you know, 15 years ago. I don't know if it's still like this now, but I would sprint back to my office, right, furiously try to think of a monologue for her about, you know, whatever. And then run back, give it to her, and then she would have notes. Like, she'd be like, you can beat this joke, and you can beat this joke, and, like, what if we said this instead of that? And, look, she's, like, the funniest person in the world. She's pretty much always right. So you'd run back to your office. I mean, literally sprinting, back, like, back to your office and fixing it up and trying to beat that joke and then running down to her dressing room, and there she's, it's, like, it's, it's everything was really um, – fast-paced and it was exciting you know and, and because she was my idol and somebody I'd always like hoped to be around that I got to be around her and learn from her every day was like beyond a dream come true um and you know I learned um so much from her and also it, it not just learning from her but it really validated uh, a lot for me in terms of like if she thought I was funny enough to write for her like it gave me a lot of self-confidence to think like oh maybe I do have something um, you know, and, and also like, she's a perfectionist and she's really hardworking and she's really demanding. And, um, and I think all of those things are really great qualities, you know, like I, I'm, there's a reason why they're successful and it's not because she's just like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, I don't really feel like working today. No, she works really fucking hard every day. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I really uh, learned a lot about my work ethic. You know, I developed my work ethic. I think based on what I learned from her and, you know, to this day, like I, I'm a real perfectionist. I work really hard and I really appreciate that and the people who work for me. Yeah. And so like when you met her, like, did you feel like you said any certain thing that like, what was your special sauce that you feel like you guys really connected on or the thing that was like, yep. Was she like, that's why I hired you. I mean, I can't really remember any specific thing, but I just think like, I, I think like, I mean, my gosh, I certainly got a kick out of her and I think that she got a kick out of me, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, I think she saw something. I mean, I can't speak for her, but I, I'm assuming that she saw something in me, um, you know, that was very simpatico to her. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, you know, obviously that I'm gay and, you know, that that, you know, her coming out obviously changed my life yeah. and made it so that I could have this career today. Yeah. Um, and so I just think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We just sort of have a, we, it's, it's just sort of right from the beginning. Like we just got along really well. Yeah. And when you're hiring your writers, do you sit down with them as well? Or do you like, what, what Absolutely. does it for you? Is it sometimes like, a story or is it like your intuition in addition to the work or what, what are the components that go into you choosing your staff? Um, 
<clears throat> I mean, first, you know, I have to read something that the person wrote, you know, and right now for, for this show, for Dead to Me, I, um, you know, I'm looking for something on the page that feels like it could translate to what we do on our show. You know, mm-hmm. are, are there characters really richly drawn? Is there a sense of humor? Is there mm-hmm. a surprising element to the storytelling? You know, are there, are there elements that feel like you, you understand the way we tell our stories? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like sort of the first and foremost um, thing I look for. And then once, you know, once I find a script that I really respond to, I'll sit down with that person if they want to sit down with me. And for me, like, I'm a people person, um, which is why this current moment that we're living through is very challenging because I mm-hmm. really miss people. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I love to be in a room with people. And so I love to love the people I'm in a room with. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm looking for personalities that gel with mine that, like, feel like people I want to hang out with for eight to 12 hours a day. Yeah. You know, that's a huge, huge thing. Like yeah. being in a writer's room is like being in a, you know, a really um, concentrated, high pressure, very personal little room. Together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I'm looking for somebody who's willing to be open and vulnerable, but funny you know, and, and, you know, somebody who feels pleasant and fun to be around. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any mentors who've helped you? And if so, like, what encouraging words have, have really helped you in your career? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I think I, I can't remember. If, I'm, I'm so sorry because I've done a few interviews today, but they're kind of oh. like now my brain is melting. <laughs> they're all melting together. Yeah. Um, I, I had a mentor in my in my young teens named Hillary Scarl. Okay. Um, she's the the woman who directed this very far off Broadway show that I did. You know where the kids wrote their own show, and um, she's the one woman who said um, you should be a stand up. Mm. And you know, I mean, like she literally like gave me my path, uh, and we're still in touch today, and I, I'm extremely grateful to her. Um, she was also my first improv teacher, um, and uh, yes, yeah, so she was definitely my first mentor. Um, you know, Ellen's definitely a mentor, whether she likes it or not. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Michael Patrick King, who I worked with on Two Broke Girls, like, he was a mentor in terms of, um, you know, making that leap to becoming a showrunner. Um, you know, while working with him, it was, we had this very funny moment one day where, you know, we're on set and he's looking at the cameras and he's sort of figuring out, he, I think he might've been directing. He was like figuring out what to do. And I was sort of like, eh, I feel like if you did this, that, and that, and he was like, and he was like, you think you could do this better than me, don't you? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> he just started laughing and he's like, you're a showrunner. You're going to be a showrunner. And I was like. Okay. And he, you know, you know, very kindly took me under his wing and, and, you know, sort of from that moment took me really seriously and was like, he really, you know, gave me the confidence to think I could do that. That's amazing. I love that. How was, how was working on Two Broke Girls? I mean, look, it was, it was amazing in terms of like, you know, sometimes you take a job on a new show and you have no idea what, what's going to happen. I mean, always, you, you never have any idea what's going to happen on that show. You know, I was such a fan of his from sex in the city. Yeah. Um, and I, I knew, I knew Whitney from stand up uh-huh. and, you know, I show up for this and, and I had actually, weirdly, I had done um, improv with Michael at the groundlings. We did a show together. Um, cause you know, they bring in like special guests all the time. So we had actually met doing improv. So we met as peers, Okay. you know, and, which was an interesting, you know, way to meet somebody who becomes your eventual boss. But, right. um, uh, so I just, you know, you, you, you take a job, you're really excited. And you know, that show was an instant hit, um, because timing and things and, yeah. you know, believe it or not, 20 million people watched that first episode. Amazing. What do you attri- what, what do you attribute it to? Um, it was a different time. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there weren't 500 TV shows on the air, but uh-huh. also we happened to follow the episode of 
Two and a Half Men, where they first introduce uh, Ashton Kutcher's character. Okay, cool. So a lot of eyeballs were on that, and then we sort of got some runoff there. But I think also, you know, it being Michael's show. Uh-oh, you froze. Oh, there you are. Oh, no, really? Okay, why did she stop writing for Ellen, somebody asked. Wait, can you... Can you hear me now? Yes, can now I can hear you, Liz. You, you cut okay. out for a moment, but now you're here. Okay. Um, why did I start writing for Ellen, somebody asked? Why did she stop writing for Ellen? Oh, stop. Um, well, you know, I I wrote for her show for two years. I got to do the Oscars with her in 2007. Um, and I had a really great thing going with her, um, but I really was starting to... First of all, I was missing performing, and I was really missing, um, not missing, but I was really itching to start telling stories. Mm -hmm. You know, with, 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 with her talk show, you can only get so far in a monologue, you know, in terms of storytelling. And then, you know, the rest of the show, it's a talk show. It's a, you know, it's, it's, you're not telling like a, you know, a narrative with the beginning, middle, and end. And I was starting to think like, oh, I really, I really want to try my hand at that. I, I want to, I want to write a sitcom. I want to develop a, my own show. And you know, I, I explained that to her, and she was incredibly kind, and you know, just gave me her blessing, and I left. But we continued to work together because she actually then produced my uh, my show, One Big Happy. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. that's wonderful. So like, what was your process of developing when you decided you wanted to tell your own stories? What was that process of developing uh, One Big Happy and then Dead to Me? Um, yeah, I mean, so, so when I left Ellen, uh, the timing was kind of weirdly good in that the writer's strike hit. Like okay. Right after I left. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so nobody was doing anything. And so, you know, I mean, all of a sudden I had a sort of a chance to reinvent myself, you know, and um, coming out of the strike, I wrote my first pilot, um, which was an early version of One Big Happy. Okay. Uh, it's a pilot I sort of, I kept sort of rewriting and redeveloping, but it was about a lesbian and her straight guy best friend. And how long um, did it take you to write that pilot? I wrote that one pretty quickly, like about, you know, maybe less than a month, you know? Okay. Um, and because it was like also like coming out of the strike, like I didn't have a job. There was nothing to do. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to make something happen quickly. Um, <clears throat> and that script got me some eyeballs, you know, and some, and some, you know, positive attention. Uh -huh. Um, and, you know, I was, I, from that script, I got my first, like, a little development thing. Um, and, and I kept sort of writing these pilots that had sort of similar themes about a, about a gay woman and her straight friend. And, like, I did, like, three or four versions of it. And eventually, one of them hit. And that was One Big Happy. Okay. Um, which Ellen produced. Um, and, you know, we ran for all of six episodes on NBC. Amazing. That's great. Um, that was our pickup. We only had six. We only were bought for six episodes. Okay. So, you know, uh, and that was a great experience. Um, but I think what I, what I figured out about myself from that experience was that I, I needed more time to tell a story. 21 and a half minutes was a really very concentrated way to be able to tell an interesting story. Um, and uh, I kept wishing I had more time. And so, you know, when eventually when I could, I developed a show for streaming, which allowed me to, you know, um, sorry, um, which allowed me, you know, to have a, a little bit of a, a bigger runway to, to tell that story. Okay, cool. So, after One Big Happy, it's funny because you have this show, One Big Happy, with yep. the word happy, and then you go to Dead to Me. Mm -hmm. So, like, how did your voice sort of, you know, change or or was it the same voice? I guess, how did you develop your voice? I mean, <clears throat> I think a, a lot of my earlier things that I wrote were for network television. I mean, yeah. everything was for network television. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, you're going to have to filter your voice so that it feels suitable to a network audience. Yeah. 
you know, you're, you're going to be given notes and you're going to be pointed in a direction that, you know, that a lot of cooks in one kitchen think will be the most appealing thing to as many different audience members as possible. So do you prefer writing for network or for a, uh, something where you might have a little more, uh, I don't know, do you have more creative, like what are the pros and cons or which do you prefer if either, if any? I mean, look, there's something really, you know, amazing about writing for network television because of the reach that it has. Yeah. You know, anybody can watch it. And that's so exciting. And it's what we grew up on. Yeah. So it's got a nostalgia, you know, uh, about it. But it's limiting. You know, you just, you know, you, there's, there's a reason why so many great TV shows are now on streaming and cable, you know, channels. It's because you're not being confined in the same way you know, as you, as you are with network television, you know, network television is censored. Yeah. Right, right off the bat, there's, yeah. you know, a major hurdle to go through. And how did you yeah. deal, like, how did you navigate with all those cooks in the kitchen? Like, how do you, how do very, you? Very, very diplomatically, yes. you know, mm-hmm. you know, I, too diplomatically probably insofar that you end up sacrificing a lot of what you really want to do for what appeases people, you know, uh, in, in positions, you know, higher than you. Yes. And, you know, and, and not to say that there, there are some really incredible, talented people who work in network television. Um, but for a show to be really, really good is incredibly challenging yeah. and really, really difficult. Yeah. And because it was my first show, I don't think I felt empowered to say no yeah. to certain things, yeah. you know, I was trying to be a good girl and I was trying to keep my job. And, you know, I think I learned a lot coming out of that, which is that like, I should trust my instincts more and I should stick to those feelings. Um, so that when I was writing dead to me, that really to me represents my real voice. Yeah. I, okay. So let's talk about dead to me coming yeah, out. Just, you know, I only have a few more minutes cause I do oh, have to go okay. uh, have dinner with my wife. Yes. Oh, of course. Oh my God. That's so wonderful. Okay. So how was the process of developing uh, dead to me? Is it based on like from ideation to creation, development, pitching? Like, is it based on anything from your life? Um, so um, how did it come about? Tell us about your journey. Oh boy. It's a long one, but, um, let me try to tell it succinctly. Okay. Um, basically I was in a really difficult period of my life. I had just turned 40. Um, and on the day I turned 40, my, uh, cousin passed away of a heart attack, uh, totally unexpectedly. Um, you know, so it was already a a time in my life where I was like, Oh my God, I'm 40. Like I'm looking at life differently. This is a real rite of passage. Then I went, you know, through a very tragic loss. At the same time, I was trying to get pregnant for like the hundredth time. Mm. Um, so there was just a lot going on. And <clears throat> I was set up um, on a meeting with a couple of producers, uh, maybe a week after I got back from my cousin's funeral. And um, they, they were, I was told they have ideas. Don't worry. You don't need anything. Just show up. They're looking for something for two, a two female lead. I show up, they're like, we're sick of our ideas. Do you have any? And I was like, (laughs) not only did I not have any, but I was like, I was in a bad place. You know, I just was not like feeling like spry and creative, but I kind of stalled and I started talking to them and literally like out of the ether, an idea dropped into my head that I had never really considered before. But I was like, "Uh, one of them's a widow and the other one, uh, she meets the other one in a grief group, only her guy didn't die, he just broke up with her. And I have no idea where it came from, like literally like from the ether. And it that's where it all started. And I, I just kept developing this idea. And I was like, this is interesting. Like this is different than anything I've done. And I kind of like this. And it gives me permission to like delve into some real feelings and, you know, to really three-dimensionalize characters in a way that I haven't had a chance to. And I kept developing it and I kept going back to pitch it to them and they seemed to really like it the more and more I developed it, but eventually they passed. Okay. So I took it to the studio where I am lucky enough to have a deal, um, you know, which means that when I have an idea, I get to take it to them and they get to say yay or nay. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I was like, look, guys, this is not what you hired me to do. This is not a multi-camera sitcom. This is like kind of the opposite of that. I pitched them the pilot and uh, one of the executives like threw her notepad across the room and I don't think she saw it coming. And, you know, she just was like, um, yes, we're going to take this out. Ah. And so like from that moment, it was like, okay, no, we're not going to make this a network show. This is, we're going to try to sell this to cable or streaming or somewhere like that. Um, and then I took the pitch out, you know, I obviously developed it further um and took it out you know to all those kind of places and we got a lot of interest it was like really incredible um and i ended up you know choosing netflix because i just could see it there yeah i could see it living on netflix and i'm such a fan of netflix that i just sort of thought what a cool place for it to be yeah i love it i'm so excited okay we only have a couple of minutes what has been and this might if this cuts out early Sorry. What has been a challenge or obstacle that you've overcome personally or professionally? How would you process that or get over it? Oh, my God. It's a heavy question. Well, look, you know, <clears throat> you know, I, I mean, I, I we all know, like, you know, failure is inevitable in this business. Um, and I think, um, you know, hearing no a lot is also inevitable. And and. Um, you know, part of our job is to put stuff out there and really connect with people, but it doesn't work every time. Right. And, you know, so, uh, I was, you know, making my first show one big happy was in many ways, like one of the happiest times of my life. Like I loved making that show. I loved the cast, Alicia Cuthbert, Nick Zano, Kelly Brooke. I mean, we had a really beautiful working relationship and I had a really joyous time working on that show but you know it didn't hit and although by today's standards it would be a hit based on how many people watch you know network mm -hmm. television today but um you know it didn't it didn't like you know it didn't blow the the ratings away so um you know when that show got canceled uh it was incredibly hard yeah. you know it's it's hard to um there's a, probably a better, healthier way to put it, but in my mind at the time, it felt like I was failing publicly. Mm. You know, um, even though, of course, so many people have, you know, ups and downs in their careers, but I just felt like I let so many people down and, um, you know, I was just so um, heartbroken about it. It was really, um, it was painful. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, it took me, it took me, a little bit to, I mean, it took me like a couple of years to really fully bounce back from that in mm -hmm. terms of my confidence. Um, but what I have <clears throat> done since then is starting to look at it differently. Like it's not a failure. I don't have to look at it like that. Mm -hmm. And I think if we get stuck in our own stories, right. Mm -hmm. About disappointing people or not being as good as this person or that person. Um, you know, I, I, I started to kind of rewrite the story. Um, to, so hopefully it's a little bit more accurate, which is like, Oh my God, I got a show on the air. Yeah. Like that was a really big deal for that time. And you know what? It might've been a little ahead of its time, you know? Um, and in that, in that weird little sitcom I did, there were a lot of twists and turns, which you don't usually see in sitcoms. And you know what? I'm still doing that today, but I found a better place for it, you know? So I don't think I would be here today, you know, about to premiere the second season of dead to me. Um, if I hadn't had that experience, you know, that show made me a showrunner, you know, it made me a person who could get a show on the air and I'm incredibly grateful for that, you know? So, so looking back on it, I see it as a success, not a failure. I um, love that so much. Okay. This is telling me it's cutting us off in one minute. Okay. So how has it, how, what is your secret Liz to being so prolific and seeming and, and so positive? I mean, um, I mean, look, I, I just work hard. I try to, I try to like, you know, I just, I just try to work as hard as I can. And I like working, you know, it's, I'm not like, it's, uh, and I don't even really think of myself as prolific, but thank you. Um, but you know, I, I just, I just try to work incredibly hard and I try at the end of the day to please myself. Like, I'm like, is this something I would like? Is this something I would watch? You know, are these characters that I would connect to? Because that's all I can really do. Like, I can't read other people's minds, but I can try to at least 
you know, get in touch with, you know, what feels good to create, what feels good to put out there. Um, and I think like, I think I'm lucky. I think I have a positive disposition. I'm just sort of like hashtag born this way. Um, and I've also had an incredibly fortunate life. So I have no reason other than to be positive. You know, I have an incredible wife. It's our seven year anniversary. Um, and I've had such great, um, you know, luck and relationships in this business. So, um, you know, I think the key to positivity is feeling grateful, you know, for yeah. what you do have. That's really beautiful. Thank you so much, Liz. I'm so I'm so happy for all of your success. I can't Thank wait you. for Dead to Me. Everyone watch it this Friday, May 8th, returning to Netflix. Yes. I have so many more questions for you all. I'll have to do another one of these later. Please do. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you, Thank Liz. You happy anniversary. Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I so appreciate you. We could not do this without your support. So thank you so much for sharing the podcast with anyone who you think could benefit or enjoy it on your socials, um, to your email list, etc. And also, if you would like to be a patron of the podcast, you can actually just click on Anchor to become a patron for any amount that you want to pledge per month to keep the podcast going, any and all contributions are greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week on Let's Process This with Melinda Hill. Yeah.